Thank you, Sai. It has been a minute since I have been preaching on this stage. I worked out it's been two months since I preached, and so that means I got a lot stored up, and uh, so this could go anywhere, as is always the case. Um, I have loved this series. Uh, if you've missed any of it, I encourage you, like, catch up on it. Uh, we love to open up God's Word and have it speak, not just ethereally, but practically. And so this series has spoken about our relationships. And specifically, as we've looked at friendship, at singleness, at marriage, and even looking at parenting today, uh, the whole idea has been that in God's Word, what we find is our relationships, God has created us relationally, and so every single relationship is set up to be a display for Jesus. And so in whatever relationship you have, you have the opportunity to show Jesus to others uh, through how you deal in relationships. And today as we take a look at parenting, I'm going to echo what we have said throughout the entire series. There are some who will hear the one about parenting and think, well, I'm not a parent, therefore this doesn't apply. I can check out. There's nothing for me. We said it in the marriage one. We said it in the singleness one. Can I just encourage you again? This has something to say to every single one of us. I'm going to prove it to you quickly. If you are a parent in the room, if you've made people, put up your hand. Right? Made people. Cool. This is going to be the biggest, probably the biggest crowd of it. Okay. Keep your hands up. Keep your hands up. Don't worry. If you have a parent, put your hand up. Yeah. See, now new ones are going to come up. Okay. And then lastly, if God is ultimately our parent, hands up. All right. Hands down. I hope you haven't missed the fact that parenting applies to all of us because it doesn't just matter if you are a parent. That might be a thing for your future. That might be a reality right now. That might never be true. Maybe it's not what God has for you, but you have been parented. And so it's really important that you understand that your parents who have parented you as good or as bad or as perfect or imperfect as they are, it's helpful to take a look at what godly parenting looks like because we're able to identify maybe what is missing or dysfunctional because parents set how we see the world. And ultimately, if God is our parent, which he is, God is the one who is going to parent us and he will parent us perfectly. And that's going to speak to each one of our hearts and each one of our walks. And so please don't think you hear the one about parenting and you believe it's not applying to you. I promise you there is stuff in here for every single one of us. Because if we miss the father heart of God, we will miss the good news of Jesus. That he is for us, that he loves us, that he cares. And so I encourage you, don't check out. We're going to jump in. I want to start out by just saying some few comments on the front end that speak of the high calling of parenting. Uh, Psalm 127 uh, tells us that children are a gift from the Lord, that they are a reward from Him. I hope this doesn't, is, it doesn't come as a shock to you, but uh, gifts are something we're supposed to enjoy. And so if children are given as a gift by, from God to us, I hope you also can put the two and two together and realize that children are meant to be enjoyed, not endured. Just like a gift that is meant to be enjoyed, but sometimes we can fall into the trap of having to endure it. You know the gift that you get from your grand and it's like the 10th year, you got the pack of socks uh, and you have to smile and say thank you and really put on a face because let's be honest, you're enduring that gift. That's not a gift you're going to enjoy. Um, I'm going to put my father-in-law on blast because he's not going to see this, so it'll be all right. Um, foundational statement. I love my father-in-law. He's an amazing guy. But just like Jesus says to the church in Revelation, I have this one thing against you. 
My father-in-law found out that I uh, loved whiskey. Maybe it's the Scottish roots in me. I enjoy a good whiskey. It's going to be good. And so from year one, he decided I would, every single time they would come and visit, they would get on a plane, come visit us, he would bring me a bottle of whiskey. Appreciate it. It's a gift that's meant to be enjoyed. Problem is, from day one, the only bottle of whiskey I've ever received from him multiple times is a Shivas Regal. If there is one whiskey I hate in the world, it is Shivas Regal. And so year one it came, year two it came, year three it came, same bottle, just stocking up in the cupboard. And I eventually was like, okay, let's try and change this. So I got Nikita to like talk to him on the side. Hey dad, maybe some, you know, maybe change it up this time. Give him something else. You know, here's some options, even named some. Year four, Shivas Regal came. Year five, Shivas came again, even, but like completely. So I, I decided, no, I just need to be completely overt. And uh, I said, Steve, you know I love you. You know I love the gifts, so I appreciate it. But it's been a lot of Shivas, and I don't actually enjoy Shivas that much. Next time, would love a bottle of whiskey, but just not a Shivas. Guess what came in year six? Shivas. And he was so excited to give it to me. I was like, did you forget the conversation we had? This year, they came again, came for uh, uh, Nikita's stepbrother's wedding. Guess what came? A different bottle, different version of Shiva's Regal. So I've given up. This is a gift that I'm simply just going to have to endure, the thorn in my flesh that cannot be removed. And so I've decided I'm just going to smile. But if children are given as a gift, I hope you know that they're meant to be enjoyed, not endured. And if you've ever been around some parents, you understand that that might not be the case. Enjoyed, not insured. But there's a high calling to parenting. And so parents, on the front end, uh, I, I want to tell you that this high calling is both going to scare you, but simultaneously, when we go to God's word, I hope there is something in here that will save you from the fear of that calling. Firstly, let me scare you. Psychology has taught us, as it is studied through, that children's development, their emotional development, their mental and, uh, and even relational capacity is directly set in the ecosystem and the context of the home that they're brought up in. And so that means parents hold a high responsibility in setting the future of their children, emotionally, relationally, and scarily, even spiritually. Uh, in, the, in around about the 60s, there was a, there's a, a, a famous uh, study that came out, and we've seen it play out all the way until now, uh, a thing called attachment theory. I would encourage you, if you're a parent, go look it up. Attachment theory, it's done by two guys called Bowlby and Ainsworth. Google it, it's amazing. But they did this thing called the strange experiment, or the strange situation, where they were seeking to understand how uh, children in their developing young years have an attachment to their parents, and how that can set them up in security when they feel fear or stress, and how they ultimately can connect meaningfully with others. And the bottom line was this, parents, the relationship you have with your child will set up the success of every other relationship they will have in their life. And the scariest thing is that doesn't stop at human relationships. That relationship gets set and in relation to God himself. Now God has grace that he can overrule any terrible situation or terrible uh, setup. That's grace from God, it's amazing. But as parents, we hold this responsibility. 
This is why we know that if, if you've heard it, us preach from this platform where we talk about the Father heart of God and every single time we have to put a disclaimer on it to say when we're talking about God as Father, it's because He's revealed Himself as that. He is perfect. You might have a bad experience, imperfect picture of what that looks like, but understand you can't take that and apply it here. We have to give a disclaimer because we understand that parents set up how we view the world how we view others, how we view ourselves, but ultimately they set up how we will view and interact and relate to God himself. And so there is a scary responsibility for us as parents. But in the same way that there is a, a fear and a high level of responsibility in the high calling of parenting, I wanna just save us for a moment by taking a picture, a look at, a, at the very first story in the Bible. And when you look at it through the lens of parenting, it's going to save us from the fear. Beginning of Genesis, God creates the world. Genesis chapter 1, he creates the heavens and the earth, and he looks at it and says it's good. Genesis chapter 2, he creates man and woman in his image, perfect representation of God, and he says it is very good. And then Genesis chapter 3, it all goes to pot, rebellion, sin enters the world, and the rest is history. But for a moment, when you look through a parenting lens... I hope you haven't missed that if God is our ultimate parent, it means that God, the holy creator of the universe, is not just our parent, he is a perfect parent. That in Genesis chapter 2, when he created man and woman in his image, they were the perfect representation, not yet marred by sin or rebellion. And so there was now no sin nature in the context of a creation that was perfect. God said it was good. And so the formula through Genesis 1 to 3 is that you have perfect parenting plus perfect environment plus no sin nature. And what do you get as an outcome? Rebellion. God, the perfect parent, had children that went astray. And so I hope the high calling of parenting is something that you take a hold of. You see the responsibility of it. But please don't miss and think we're called to be perfect parents. What we're called to be is the parents who look to our perfect parent and point our kids there. And so for a moment, can I just save us from the pressure of it and push us and encourage us and commend us toward the responsibility of it. That's what we want to see. Our plan of action is going to look at two keys to godly parenting. So the two main headings are going to be right goal and right heart, if you're taking notes. Firstly, I want to take a look at right goal. If you want to know the goal or the aim of something, if you want to know the goal or the aim of, the cent of your home, you need to be asking the question, what is the center of our home? Because if we can see what is centered around, what is of, of highest value in the midst of a home and a family and a parenting structure, you're going to get a picture as to what is the aim and the goal. And I think sometimes we make the mistake that we get the wrong center and suddenly the goal of parenting gets shifted. We're Marnie Libok taking shots at the poles. We're missing the mark. I know, it still hurts. It's too soon. I always say it's so much easier to like, preach after a victory. Today's going to be tough. But we're still in it. It's all right. So the question is, well, what is the center of the home? We see homes where, and I guarantee you could walk around a home. You could look at the activity of a family. You could, you could see what their calendar looks like. And very quickly, you'll be able to pick up what is of highest value there. Some homes, the highest uh, form of value is actually success. 
And when success is the center of a home, it means awards and honors and good marks are the currency that the home runs on. When the center of the home is money, you have the parents who work themselves to the bone because making money is what is important. Sometimes the center of a home can be comfort. And this is the home where you see parents who at every opportunity eject and escape because the goal is actually comfort. Leave me alone. Mom and dad need some space. Dad needs to go in and retreat to the man cave because comfort is the center of the home. How different will our homes look? How different will our parenting be? How different will the goal and the aim of our family be if Jesus is the center? What would that actually look like? I think as we look to the wisdom of scripture, the goal of parenting becomes very different when Jesus is now the center. In Proverbs 22 verse 6, and, and I encourage you, uh, if you read uh, Proverbs as a parent, it's going to give you so much wisdom. Because Proverbs actually is Solomon giving encouragement and guidance to his son. And through the lens of parenting, we're going to get so much out of it. And we'll be in it a lot today. But Proverbs 2 verse 6 says, Train up in a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, I want to encourage you. I know so many of us as parents, we grab a hold of this. But it's important that we grab a hold of this uh, verse rightly. This is a proverb, not a promise. Again, we're not, remember perfect parenting can still call, have rebellion. Perfect parenting can still have wayward children. And so we don't hold to this as a promise. We see it as a proverb, a principle for godly parenting. And so we want to handle it rightly. So the goal of parenting now is not to control your child. According to the wisdom of Proverbs, the goal of parenting is to train a child, to grow a child towards godliness. It says to train them up, meaning to point their heart, their mind, their soul, all that they are towards God and the ways that he has. And so very practically, we can get that parenting, the journey of parenting is you take someone who is dependent and now you want to train them up in independence. But at a deeper spiritual level, you are taking a child who you are entrusted with by God, who is fully dependent on you, Quite literally, physically, emotionally, mentally, they start out fully dependent on you. If they were left to themselves, they would die. But the goal of parenting is now from dependence to independence. And so instead of full dependence on you, we want to move our children towards full dependence on God alone. That is the goal of parenting according to the wisdom of Proverbs. And so it says we're to train up our children. Now there's a few things I want to look at that we should be training our children up in if we're going to godly parent. The first one is we need to train them up in wisdom and character. Proverbs, we would have seen this in the, the wisdom series coming through so strong. The very beginning of Proverbs, Solomon says this, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. If we're to train up our children, we need to understand the truth of Scripture, and it's going to put it in plain black and white for us. The reality is we are not raising uh, children, we're raising little fools. We love them to bits. They are the greatest, cutest, we'll die for you, take a bullet for you, but they are little fools who need to be trained up in wisdom. Last week... I was in that church because Saturday night we were at the hospital with Jaden who fell off a trampoline and we were getting a CT scan and 
all was good, don't worry, he's all good. But the next day, he was on the same trampoline, bouncing away, not thinking about what happened less than 24 hours later. He is a little fool that we are training in wisdom, who scares the crap out of his mom and dad. It is so important that you don't miss that we're called to train up our children in wisdom. Not just knowledge. We're not just putting information in because knowledge is about information. Wisdom is about transformation. And so we train them up in wisdom and godly character because we understand what the goal is. Full dependence on God and God alone. In uh, Proverbs chapter 4, we're going we're gonna to be there a lot today. Um, Solomon is giving guidance to his son. And this is what he says in verse 20. He says, My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life. It's about transformation. They are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. We don't just train them up in teaching them in information, in knowledge. We take it the step further that wisdom is actually going to transform them. And so if Jesus is the center of our family and the center of our parenting, our house, our home, our family is not going to be a school of information. It's not going to be a school of, uh, of knowledge. It's not going to be a school of success. Our home needs to be a school of wisdom. Train them up in wisdom and knowledge. I know many parents will understand this. This past week, we School, our school broke up on Friday, and so we had our end-of-term parent-teacher meeting. And for a lot of parents, that can be sometimes a stressful exercise. Because now we need to evaluate where we are and where there may be something that's lacking. And I think we need to be honest with ourselves that sometimes what we stress about as parents, especially when they're little, uh, is actually dumb stuff in the context of their whole life. Jaden, our three-year-old, about a year ago, uh, we went through a season where he was a biter. And if any parent knows what that's like, it is a stressful time to have a two-year-old that's known as the biter in the class. And so if you get PTSD every single time the phone rings or you get a message from the teacher or you don't hear anything, but then you get home and you open up their bag and there's that little white slip, which is an incident report, which says, Jaden bit another kid. Here's some witnesses that have signed. And you're just like, No. And it can freak you out. And then you go to a parent-teacher meeting, you're like, but is he biting kids? Luckily, it was a season, it's done. But as a parent, you understand that can be a season which freaks you out. But so often as parents, do we not blow that up? And we freak out, they're biting at two. But we forget that that's going to be a funny story when they're 32. If they're biting at 32, we've got a real problem. <laughs> but it's going to be a funny story when they're 32. And so sometimes we put too much emphasis and stress on things that, yes, they do matter now, but in context, are they going to matter across the journey? Let me help us. God doesn't just give you entrust to you a child to raise. We need to change our perspective and realize God entrusts an adult to raise who happens to be a child now. And so it's really important because it's going to change and filter our perspective because yes we'll deal with the biting now at two but there are bigger things that we can do at two that are going to matter when he's 32 
And so when we sit in parent-teacher meetings, I'd encourage you to do this. When we sit in parent-teacher meetings, we did it on Wednesday, we ask two questions. We'll talk about things, hey, how many piece puzzles is Jaden doing? Because you have to hit a number. But the questions we will ask those teachers is this. Number one, are they kind to the children around them? Are they kind? Because it's an issue of character. And that will matter when they're 32. And the second question we will ask is the second thing we should be training up our kids in. We ask, is our child respecting you as the teacher? Are they respectful towards you? Because respecting authority matters. And so the two questions we will ask is a question of character and a question of authority. We need to train, number two, them up in a godly respect for authority. If we get this wrong, it causes all type of issues. There are things that we will teach our children, but there are things that our children will catch from us. If we want to prioritize wisdom, if we want to instill in our children the fear of the Lord, it means we're going to teach them, we're going to talk to them, we're going to open up God's word and read with them. But we can't forget that there will be things unknowingly that we will teach because things don't necessarily have to be taught, they can be caught. And when it comes to kids, they don't miss anything. Our kids know far more than we even realize. And it comes out in the worst moments because the worst thing about it is they say and they tell everyone else about it. It is not, you have not had a parent experience. You are not a parent if you don't understand what it means. I said, there's two things. Kids will roast you, but kids will also rat you out. They'll tell everyone the truth because they've seen it. Because there's stuff that is caught that's not taught. Uh, in the last few weeks, you've seen our next news. We've had uh, next-gen leaders that get brought up and, and, and have, have an honoring moment, and it's been cool for our parents to see the amazing next-gen leaders we have, get to know them. Can I tell you, our next-gen leaders know far more about you than you know, because your kids have told them about you. Your kids know what you did last weekend, and they've told their leader about it, and that's why we weren't in church. Funny story for me is last year, Holiday Club, uh, I was leading a big group lesson in this room. It's packed. It's got all the kids, all the leaders. And I'm asking questions and getting interaction from uh, everyone at Holiday Club. And I asked a question. I can't even remember what the question was. But I was waiting for an answer. And there was a girl who put up her hand. And she clearly missed the question. Because her answer had nothing to do with what the question was. But loudly and proudly, in front of the whole of Holiday Club, every leader, every child, she just announced, my dad really loves tequila. Now, I know that dad, but that dad doesn't know that we know what his kid told us. Because kids will rat you out. They're watching what we do. And this is the truth I think I want to drive home. That our children will adopt our values, but not our boundaries. They will see what we model in how we act in how we are in certain situations, and they will take on that as a value. But where we draw lines and boundaries, I hope you know they push the boundary and they set their own boundary. I'll give you an example. Imagine something like your kids watch you how you drive. And they watch how you sometimes don't follow the stop sign. And sometimes, you get to church and you don't listen to the parking team at City Hope Church 
and you do your own thing. And you have now modeled a picture for your kids that says, I'll respect authority when it suits me. And we're shocked then that that same child, when we get home and we give them an instruction as their authority parent, they come back and they say, no. Because what we have modeled is I respect and follow authority only when it suits me. Now we draw a boundary that says, cool, maybe we'll, we'll let it in the gray area here, a little stop sign here. But when it's a metro cop, we're now going to bow to the authority that is there because we've drawn a boundary. Children will adopt our values, not necessarily our boundaries. And so they don't draw a boundary that says, cool, I can play in this area. But mom, when it comes to you, I'll respect that authority. Children adopt our values, not necessarily our boundaries. And that comes out in how we act. That comes out in how we un unknowingly are teaching them by the way we model how we respond to authority. And so the challenge for us parents is that that response or that resistance that sometimes we can model to our kids of authority doesn't just end with us. It gets applied to God as well. And so suddenly it becomes very difficult to now respect and follow God as an authority because it's difficult right now. It doesn't suit me. Or I don't even understand what God is doing in this situation. And so I eject because that, that is what was modeled to me. Parents, the challenge for us is that we have to model a godly respect for authority so that our kids can follow it. That's right, go. Second big hitting is right heart. I think... In the context of the responsibility of parenting, one of the greatest responsibilities that we have in what we've been entrusted by God with these kids is the responsibility over their little heart. And if you're a parent, you'll understand what it feels like when you see your baby's heart broken. And that is the thing you've been called to care for. But we've been given by God the greatest weapon in the fight for our children's heart and it's our own heart. It says in, in Proverbs 4, later on in that chapter, keep your heart with all, vision, uh, all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. 900 times through scripture, we hear of the human heart, but it's described as this, this emotional center of our being. And it has a, a process that's very cause and effect, saying that actually out of your heart will flow either life or death. And so if there's life in your, heart, in your heart, health in your heart, it's going to play out in your behavior in a healthy, godly way. But if there's darkness in a heart, if there's brokenness, hurt in a heart, why are we shocked that that comes out in the actions, in the thoughts, in the speech that we have? And so parents, I want to start with our heart first because I really do believe it is a tool and a weapon given to us by God in caring for our kid's heart. Maybe you need to take a moment and ask yourself, how is my heart doing? It's the number one question me and Nikita ask each other. How is your heart? And we're not just saying, hey, how are you doing? We're saying, how is your heart, the very center of your being? Because we understand that if you've got a broken heart, it will lead to broken actions. That if you've got a heart that is hurting, you are going to hurt as a parent. And so we will check in with each other, how is your heart? And if you're a parent right now and your heart is hurt or broken, I want to encourage you, you have the perfect parent in God and maybe God needs to parent you for a little bit before you parent your kid. 
Because his heart for you is the father heart that wants to care, that wants to heal, that wants to repair, to reconstruct, to rehabilitate, to put back in alignment with how he would have you walk this thing out. And then as we're given the responsibility over our child's heart, I hope that we also understand that just like you who is in need of a heart that must be healed, that just like you are in need of a heart that must be renewed and made whole, uh, the Bible talks about our heart when we make Jesus Lord has to be regenerated. So it needs new desires because our old desires are never going to be godly. You might be facing opposition and resistance and having a tough time with your child, but please realize they aren't just Christian because they were born into your home. Understand that they don't just magically somehow become Christian and get a new heart. And the opposition and the resistance you are facing is because they still have an old heart that still needs to be renewed by Jesus. And we get to play the role as parent where we care for that, where we pursue that heart, but most importantly, we take that heart to Jesus so that he can give them a new heart. We need to take our heart to Jesus and we need to lead our kids there. It's heart first. Continuing through scripture, that is the picture, that it's heart first. And that even plays out in how we correct our children. And so when it's heart first, it means we have to connect before we correct. Early on in Proverbs, through, uh, Proverbs 4, it says, When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, Let your heart, heart first, let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments, and live. Get wisdom, get insight, do not forget, and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. If the calling of parenting is to train and to grow our children, that means it's going to take some moments where we coach and we will ultimately correct them. But the truth is, we are to correct, not, and, and the correction is a picture in scripture of discipline, because it's not just simply punishment, it's discipline, which means that it is going to be baked into how God disciplines us. Because God will always put heart first, loved first, even in his discipline of us, because at the very center and the motivation of God is our best. He's setting us up even in disciplining us for our flourishing and best. Now, when we are correcting our children, and we do get this wrong, especially dads, we see behavior that needs to be corrected, and what do we go after first? The behavior. But we forget that that's not how transformation works because out of the heart comes the action. And so if we're always going after the action, we're, sh we're shocked that the action just carries on because nothing has been transformed because we think it's going to work outside in, but that's not how it works. It works inside out. And so before we correct, we need to actually connect with our kid's heart because that's how God will discipline us. The two keys to godly discipline that we see in how God uh, is calling us to parent in a godly way is number one, our kids need to know our love before they know our discipline. And number two, it's delight first, then discipline second. Proverbs 3 verse 11, he says, my son, reminds him, my son, that's where we start. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the, rep the Lord reproves him who he loves, as a father the son in whom he delights. It's love and delight first 
in our discipline and correction for our kids' good. And so the challenge is that we're to delight in our kids. And so that means that godly parenting doesn't get the poor man's version that says, hey, I just love my kids, but I don't like them very much. Godly parenting actually means that it's available, that you can love and like your kid. Because God delights in us. I want you to know, God doesn't just love you, God actually likes you. God seeks you out, desires relationship with you. And in the same way, we need to be a parent who delights in our kids. And so that means we're going to get into their world. What interests them, what, what they care about, it means fun is going to be the currency of how we do things. And ultimately, joy will be the byproduct of our home. We have to delight in our kids. Last thing I want to say before I wrap, wrap up is that I believe we need to know that quality comes out of quantity. In many ways, we, uh, we place quality time over quantity. And there's a danger there because we understand why we do that. We do it because we're forced to. We actually do it because we understand that with work and our schedules and our calendars and pressures and financial struggles and all of these things, it's like quality isn't even possible. But I really do believe that quality time with our kids is overall a myth. And it's a myth for two reasons. The first one is that the clock is actually ticking. I'm going to put some stats out. And when I heard it, I want to tell you, it wrecked my heart. So let me wreck yours. But it set me in a focus that says, actually, this matters. If you're a parent, I, I, I want you to know that the average child, when they get to the age of 12, you have spent 70% of the total time you will ever spend with that child at 12. Lady Beth turned five this month. At five, it's between 40 and 50%. So I have spent nearly half the time I will ever spend with Lilybeth in my life. At 18, 90% of the time that you will spend with your child is done. And so the clock is ticking. Second reason is quality time comes out of quantity. And it's a truth we're going to have to look in and really intentionally go after. If you're a parent that drives your kids to school, you'll know this. I do it most days of the week. You drive in, drop off, you pick up, and you ask the question, hey, how was school? I've already got toddlers who the answer is fine. Hundreds of times, quantity, hundreds of times, fine. But I can pick out the days where something special happened where they had a reptile show and they blew up in the car with joy telling me about the animals they saw and the crocodile they touched and how this is their new favorite animal and it was an amazing time, quality time with parent and child. Or there was another moment where that little heart got broken because Lilybeth will tell me about a girl who was super mean to her at school and broke her heart. And we get to have a conversation that says, hey, you know what? What people say about us is less important because we need to know what God says about us. And we get to say, hey, you know what? Jesus is the one who says, even when people can be mean to us, we don't have to fight back, retaliate. We can be kind to them. And you get to have a moment where you get to train up your child in wisdom and godly character. But it came mixed in with the hundreds of fines the truth is we'll find quality within quantity. And this is where I want to end. 
As parents, as anybody, we know that ultimately God is our parent. That he is our father and that means he has a father heart towards you and me. And so I hope you realize that he cares for your heart. And scripture tells us that he delights over us. When he speaks about his people in Psalm 16, he says, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Isaiah says, for the Lord delights in you. He's the God who frees and saves us. Galatians 3 says in verse 26, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And it specifically says sons, it's meaning sons and daughters, but it says sons because it means that we are in the family with full inheritance. That's how it worked in ancient times. It continues and says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Jesus prays in John 17 in his high priestly prayer. And he says, Lord, as you have loved me, you have loved them. And so the father heart of God is that he loves us with the exact same love that he loves Jesus. The love that God the Father has for God the Son is the same love that is lavished upon me and you. And that's why 1 John 3 verse 1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Why don't you stand with me? The Father heart of God is wanting to pursue each one of us again. He's wanting you to know that he cares for your heart, the condition of your heart. He wants to know that if there is any brokenness there, that he can bring healing, that he can reconstruct what has been broken down by the world, by sin, by evil, by iniquity. That's what he wants to do. And so Jesus, it's our heart right now that we would receive your fatherly love. That Lord, as we have been parented here on earth, maybe imperfectly, we know that you are our perfect parent in heaven who delights over us, who has saved and freed us, the God who, is, who loves us and loves us to bring us into intimate, close relationship with our God. Lord, would we not miss your heart for us so that we can have a heart for others that displays Jesus, that displays you, that walks out this life in wisdom and godly character, that understands you are the God who fought for us, who has won the victory on our behalf. And so Lord, would you do business in our hearts right now, even as we sing of the Father heart of God and how you pursue us, but how you are calling and inviting us again into your presence to sit on your lap, to be enveloped in your arms that are love and mercy and grace and care. And in that space, Lord, would you set our hearts right? Would you heal what is broken? We love you. We worship you. We choose to honor, obey, and give you glory. Let's sing about the Father heart of God for us.